This is KMTT, and today is Thursday. Every Thursday, Shiur in the Megillot, and now Dr. Yael Ziegler, who will be giving the Shiur in Megillatot. Shalom, and welcome to our final Shiur on the manner in which Megillat Root interacts with uh, other biblical books. I'd like to take the opportunity today to wish everybody a Chag Sameach in their upcoming Chag of Shavuot and to hope, um, to express the hope that perhaps our Shirim have enriched our understanding of Megillat Root in preparation for our reading of Megillat Root on Shavuot. Today I'd like to discuss the questionable scenario in Parak Gimel in which Naomi initiates some sort of, of scenario in which Root meets Boaz in the in, in the field um, at night. Um, I'll begin by reading the beginning of chapter three, in which Naomi initiates this meeting. Vatomerla Naomi Chamota. Naomi, her mother-in-law, says to her, "Biti halova keshlach manoach asher yitavlach." My daughter, will I not search for you or seek for you a resting uh, place or a resting mode that will be good for you? And that is, of course, a reference to marriage. When Naomi sent Ruth and Orpah back to um, to Moab in the beginning of the book, she says to them, uh, God should give you and you should find a resting place or a resting mode, each woman in the house of a man, in the house of her husband. So here Naomi proposes to Ruth that she's going to find for her um, a husband or or continuity, um, and she suggests to Ruth how she should go about this. And she begins by saying, Vata, and now, Halo Voz Modatanu, Asher Hayit et Narotav, Behold Boaz, our intimate, um, our intimate relative, our intimate friend, that you were with his, his young maidens, that you picked with his young maidens, she seems to be alluding to. Hinehu zore et goren haserim halayla. He is winnowing the barley in the, in the field tonight. Virachatst, and you should wash yourself. Vasacht, and you should anoint yourself with perfume. Vesamt simlotaich alaich, and you shall place, you shall she shall dress herself in your dress, v'yaradit hagoren, and you should go down to the winnowing house. Al tevadi laish ad kaloto leechol vilishtot. Should not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Vihi v'shochvo, and it will be when he lies down. V'yadat tamakom asher yishkav sham, and you should make known for yourself the place where he will lie there. And you should come, and you should uncover his legs, and you should lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. This is really a very difficult scenario. It's very suggestive. And in fact, we see that Ruth doesn't enthusiastically respond to Naomi's request, although she does agree to do whatever it is that Naomi has commanded her to do. But Tomerela, and Ruth responds to Naomi, Everything you tell me, I will do. We've already spoken about this this word Eli, which actually falls out of the sentence in the actual written version of the text. Ruth is 
is not doing this for herself, but rather for Naomi. Ruth here displays extraordinary obedience to her mother-in-law. And of course, one of the things that we should point out here is that Ruth is a Moavite, a Moavite who is, uh, certainly has a reputation which precedes the Moavite women of being promiscuous. She is endangering her reputation, perhaps her hard-earned reputation that she's been working on the entire time that she's been in the, um, in the fields harvesting with the young women. Um, and here Naomi's really asking her to risk everything. She's saying to her, go out in the evening, all dressed up and perfumed, and um, and go down to the Goren, where you will basically engage in some sort of scenario in which you are seducing or suggesting to Boaz that you are seducing him. Now, uh, really, I mean, I think that we have... Um, several questions about this scenario. The first question, I think, is the most simple of all. Why doesn't Boaz, why doesn't Naomi just knock on Boaz's door? I mean, we know so much about Boaz. Boaz has displayed in Perak Bet such a, an in, incredibly generous character. He clearly is willing to help Root. He clearly admires Root. He says to her, It has surely been told to me everything that you did with your mother-in-law. And he's extraordinarily kind and generous with her and and to her and he makes these grand um announcements in in the in the hearing range of all of the uh reapers in his field as to roots extraordinary acts and certainly it would be at least worthy of of a shot here that Naomi should go to Boaz and propose that um the marriage arrangements should take place in a perhaps a more decent, more uh, conventional fashion. Um, and so this scenario itself, I think, is, is, is very difficult to understand. The one thing that I will um, point out is that Naomi actually never speaks to Boaz throughout the entire Megillah. In fact, it's not clear whether they meet at all. Now, in this final scene in Perak Dalid, um, we see that Boaz is present um, in perhaps the same scenario in which Naomi is present, and yet Naomi's not referred to, and nobody speaks to Naomi, and so it's not at all clear that even at the marriage scene that Boaz and Naomi meet. In fact, it's only after Ruth has this child that the women speak to Naomi and bless Naomi, and um, and the whole story of Naomi's loss comes to a close. So in fact, Boaz and Naomi never meet. Boaz provides for Naomi but only indirectly. Boaz gives food to Root in Perak Bet, both in the short term and in the long term. He gives her uh, lunch for that day, and he gives her the, the right and the permission to pick in his field for the duration of the harvest season. And Root offers both of these things to Naomi. She gives her, her leftovers from that day's meal, and she gives her the food that she picks t- throughout the harvest season. So Boaz gives indirectly to Naomi. Also in Paragimel, um, when Boaz offers root um, the promise of marriage, the promise of continuity, the promise of a goel, of, of future, of redemption. And then he gives her in the uh, immediate um, future, he gives her, or in the immediate present, he gives her these six, what seems to be six sheaves of barley as a promise that he is going to act upon his um, his promise immediately. Um 
Naomi comes back, Ruth comes back to Naomi, rather, and offers her these six sheaves of barley. So Ruth becomes the almost mediator. I wouldn't say almost. She becomes the mediator between Boaz and Naomi who never meet. Now, I think one can certainly understand this. Naomi's character and her involvement um, in the leaving of Beit Lechem during the time of the famine is, in fact, a machloket. Uh, Rashi, of course, says that it's not Naomi's fault, that Naomi had to follow her husband, that she herself uh, had no choice, and that she didn't take initiative here. But there are other midrashim which reflect the possibility that, in fact, Naomi um, is guilty as well. And, of course, uh, the townspeople reflect this as well. This confusion, this question is um, inherent in the ambiguity of of the question of the townspeople when they first see Naomi coming back from Beit Lechem. They ask the question, Hazot Naomi? Now, of course, we can't hear that question. So we don't know whether that question was asked in a tone of pity, Hazot Naomi, or in a tone of mockery, as the Gemara says, Hazot Naomi? Is this that same Naomi that left us all bedecked in her jewels? Look at her now. Or is it said in a tone of incredulity, Hazot Naomi? It's very difficult to understand. Perhaps it's even said in a tone of anger, Hazot Naomi? How dare she return? Again, there's a sense that um, we don't know whether or not Naomi is culpable. Perhaps the town people don't, the townspeople don't know. It's possible even that Naomi herself doesn't know. And so the um, inability of Naomi and Boaz to meet perhaps also reflects this uh, difficulty that we have with the reintegration of Naomi back into Beit Lechem. Um, and I would suggest that perhaps that's also the reason that Naomi uh, chooses to employ other means, perhaps one might call them deceptive means, in order to introduce Boaz to Ruth rather than just knocking on Boaz's door and reminding Boaz of his responsibility. Now, um, the other side of this is, of course, that Naomi here, chooses to employ a method which is a a known method in Tanakh. In fact, she deliberately patterns herself on two other striking stories. They're striking stories because they undoubtedly connect to our story. And this is what we've been doing throughout our study of Megillat Rut, really trying to show how Megillat Rut fits into the larger context of Tanakh. Indeed, there are three similar stories in Tanakh um, and Chazal recognized these similarities. The first story is the story of Lot's daughters who initiate um, uh, sleeping with their father in the aftermath of the destruction of Stom and Amorah. This, of course, leads to the people of Moab, which leads, of course, to Rut. And we have the story of Tamar and Yehuda, in which Tamar, recognizing that Yehuda is not planning to marry her off to the third brother, to Shelah, to his third son, I should say, Tamar goes out and initiates sleeping with Yehuda, and this of course leads to Boaz. So that the story of Boaz and Ruth meeting um, in the field, in the night, as Ruth initiates some sort of uh, rather questionable scenario, which she seems to offer herself to Boaz, has biblical precedence. And Naomi seems to be deliberately patterning herself on these other stories. Again, as I noted, Chazal recognized the connection between these stories. There are several interesting midrashim in which Chazal draw a connection between all three of these stories, and I think it's really hard not to see it. Now, in each of these stories, the first thing that I would say is, is that we learn of the 
role of the woman in Tanakh, the woman's determination to obtain continuity. Um, this is, of course, part of the legacy of the Davidic dynasty. The background of Mashiach is the determination to obtain continuity, even when all odds are against it, even when it means employing unconventional behavior. In fact, I would say that this behavior is consistent in general with the portrayal of women in Tanakh, who we see over and over and over will not accept childlessness, will not accept the loss of continuity in any circumstances. And that includes, of course, the story of all the barren women, and as well, the women who press forward to fight the most evil decrees even when the situation seems hopeless. And here, of course, I refer to the story of um, the beginning of Shemot, the story of the people's enslavement in Egypt, in which we really see that the men seem to fade into the background. The Midrashim pick up on this. The Midrashim, of course, uh, really condemn Amram for his role in not ensuring continuity or even perhaps preventing continuity. And in those chapters, uh, what we see is we see the midwives, we see Yocheved, we see Miriam, we even see Paro's daughter. Later on, we're going to see Tzipporah in a similar role. Here we have the story of women who are willing to do almost anything who are compl- uh, for, for continuity, who are absolutely not complacent when it comes to childlessness or when it comes to the um, the the possibility of imminent destruction of the family or of the nation. And this is the story uh, that we have here as well. It's a story of women in Tanakh. Now, this is also, I think, the story of of the mitzvah of Yibum in Devarim, Perak Kafhei, where it is the woman who goes to the gate to protest uh, her brother-in-law's refusal to do Yibum, if in fact he does refuse, there's an assumption that the woman is um, is going to use every means at her disposal in order to um, in order to obtain continuity. Um, now, this story, I mean, this idea, I could I could uh, expand at great length. I'm going to leave it at that for a moment. What I really want to do now is to discuss the similarities of these three stories in order to be able to point out the differences. Now, it seems to me that Naomi's role here is to push Root into doing what Tamar did, into doing what Binot Lot did. Um, and it seems to me that the point of the story is to show how Root doesn't exactly do what they did, or perhaps... I put put more um, accurately how the story of Boaz and Ruth doesn't follow the same exact trajectory of the story of Lot and his daughters and Tamar and Yehuda. But in fact, what I would say is ultimately that this story in Megillat Ruth is a tikkun for the pre- previous stories. And again, I, I'm not really saying that we're meant to condemn the previous two stories. In fact, Chazal are filled with praise, not just for what Tamar does, but also for what the daughters of Lot do. In fact, there seems to be a very positive outlook on these women who are determined to fight for their own continuity, who won't give up, and who are trying to correct the story. But here in the story of Ruth and Boaz, we have a tikkun even for those previous stories, and that's really what I want you to see here. Now, the first thing I want to note is that all three of these stories begin with a separation. Um, a problematic separation, one which takes someone away from his destiny, one which takes someone away from 
Avraham, one which takes someone away from Am Yisrael in the direction of immorality, in the direction of Stom, in the direction of Canaan, in the direction of Moab. We already discussed this with regard to Lot, right? Our story of Lot begins, or the story of Lot sleeping with his daughters begins with Lot leaving Avraham for Stom, a different, terrible, sinful culture that represents, as we said in a previous year, the antithesis of Avram. By the same token, the story of Yudah and Tamar begins with Yudah leaving his brothers. Note the words, Vayered Yehudah me'et echav. Yehudah leaves his brothers. Um, and the first thing he does is he marries the daughter of a Canaanite and he has sons who want, who spill their seed, an indication that he has rejected, he and his family have rejected the bracha of Avram. The bracha of Avraham includes both Zerah and Aretz, includes uh, both continuity and land. By marrying a Canaanite, he suggests that he's not interested in taking the land from the Canaanim. And because his sons act as they do, he uh, shows that he has not certainly not transmitted to them the idea, the ideal of continuity. And all of this suggests that Yehuda, in the aftermath, of course we can't separate this from the story of Mechirat Yosef, in the aftermath of the brothers selling Yosef, presumably in a quest to make sure that Yosef doesn't take the bracha of Avraham from them, he decides, Yehuda decides he wants to opt out of the bracha of Avraham, of the Abrahamic family, which has um, deteriorated into a situation of fratricide, of brothers killing brothers. Now, in our story as well, we begin with a separation, right? Elimelech leaves with his family, and he goes to Moab. We mentioned Moab is the spiritual heir of stone. It is the antithesis of Avraham. But in our story, we also have a return. And in fact, both of our characters in Paragimel, Boaz and and Rude are um, not represented by any sort of separation. Of course, Boaz never left. But more importantly, Root returns. She returns with the same verb we mentioned previously that Lot used, that was used about Lot when he separated from Avram. Right? Remember we spoke about this. He pared na me'alai vayipardu ish me'al echiv and each man separated from his brother. And Root says, I will never separate from you, Naomi, with the same word, ki hamavet yafrid beni uvenech. Indeed, the one who separates from Avram in this story falls out of the story. That is Elimelech. In all three of these stories, going back to our comparison between these stories, the separation from Avram leads to a tragedy, leads to death and destruction. The idea is, is that this line cannot be continued. Leaving the fold, leaving Avraham leads to immorality, opting out, right? Um, uh, and the idea that this family does not have continuity when they tread the path of stone, when they turn their backs on Am Yisrael, there is no continuity. And that's the story of Lot, right? Lot becomes part of a culture which cannot be sustained, which cannot be continued, and therefore he and his family are threatened with extinction. Well, the same is true with Yehuda, right? Immediately after the leaving, there's a, a, a story of death, of destruction. Er dies and Onan dies and Yehuda refuses to give Shelah 
to Tamar in order to continue the family. Um, and in our story as well, the story begins immediately following the separation and the going to Moab, which is a culture that cannot, that, that is not meant to represent continuity. We have the death of Elimelech, the death of Machlon, the death of Chilion, and the sense that the tragedy is about to result in the cessation of the line. There is no right to continue this family. In the case of um, Lod, his daughters assume that the whole world is destroyed, that there's no one left. Yehuda doesn't seem to be particularly interested in continuity and seems to be living life only in the present. And Elimelech and his sons, too, do not um, seem to care about continuity. In fact, many Midrashim indicate this. Uh, the Midrashim say uh, about about uh, Machlon Chilion's marriage to Moabiot, to Moabite women, Asu Gufehen Chulin. They turn their bodies into profane objects, into secular objects. In other words, they're not interested in continuing the line of Avram, the, 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 the divine destiny that is part of the idea of having children. Um, now, in, in each of these stories, in all three of these stories, the women will not agree. The women are willing to fight for continuity, even if it goes against the code of morality of Am Yisrael and is in consonance with Canaanite morality, such as we have with Lot's daughters sleeping with their father and Yudah's daughter-in-law sleeping with her father-in-law. In our story, of course, we have the cleaning up of this scenario in which Boaz is a father-like figure, right? He he consistently refers to Ruth as BT, my daughter, but there is, in fact, no Arayot going on here. There's no immoral um, sexual relationship going on here. In any case, though, the women here are willing not just to use, uh, to go against the code of morality of Am Yisrael, but also to use deception in order to achieve their aims, right? In the story of Lot's daughters, they get their father drunk, right, in order to deceive him into sleeping with them. And in the story of Tamar, of course, she covers her face, she um she 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 dresses up in order to deceive um, Yehuda. Um, now, w- w- in our story as well, we actually have both, right? In our story, Naomi tells uh, Ruth, first of all, don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And later on, we're going to see Boaz ate and he drank and his heart was merry, which in Tanakh seems to imply some level of intoxication. And of course, she also tells her to dress up. Now, dressing up here doesn't necessarily mean covering her face, but of course, she is going to him in the night. And, um, and, and so she seems to pick up on both methods of deception in the previous stories in Sefer Bereshit. And the idea here is to um, almost uh, seduce or induce the man to sleep with her um, by using some way of covering up or perhaps even of deception. Now, the word here that I think is very important in all three of these stories, and there are certain linguistic similarities in these stories which one would expect to find, the word shachav, um, to lie with, is a prominent word in all three stories. Um, and yet the word that I want to point out, in which in my opinion is the key word for understanding the difference between the first two stories and the last story, is the word yada. 
The word yada, the word knowledge, um, is an integral part of the story in which in both of the first two stories, the word is lo yada. It is uh, the negative. There is lack of knowledge. We're told twice about Lot. Lo yada b'shichva uvekuma. He did not know when, um, you know, when, when he went to sleep and when he got up. Also with Yehuda, we're told, Lo yada ki chalatahi. He did not know that this was his daughter-in-law. And this is the same word that is used by Naomi when she sends her daughter-in-law down to the field to meet Boaz. Al tivadi laish. Ad Do not make yourself known to the man. Now, I would like to suggest here that knowledge is destiny. Um, deception is, is, is giving up. What we have here is two people, or certainly, certainly in the case of Lot and Judah, two people who don't know because they choose not to know. In fact, Chazal pick up on this and say very explicitly, Lo yada bishikhva uvekuma, he did not know when he lied down and when he got up, bishikhva lo yada, he did not know when he lied down, but when he got up, he certainly knew, and therefore, the second night in which he allowed his daughters to get him drunk again, in which, in which he slept with his second daughter, is even more, is extremely problematic. I want to suggest here that both Lot and Yehuda are consistent in their behavior. The person who opts out of his destiny by leaving behind Berchat Avraham also opts out of the desire to have knowledge, the desire to be an active member of forming his destiny. He'd rather not know. It simply is the kind of lifestyle that each of these men chose. They are deceived because they do not care about being deceived. They do not wish to have knowledge. They do not wish to be in control of their destiny or to, to be interested in their, their destiny. And perhaps the best example of this may be drawn from a different book in Tanakh, and that is the book of Esther, uh, which most of us are very familiar with. The one who is always described in the book of Esther as having knowledge is Mordechai. Mordechai yada et asher na'asa v'yivada hadavar Mordechai. Mordechai knows, he knows what happened with Big Tan and he knows about the decree that happened between the king and Haman. And the question is, is why Mordechai is described as having knowledge? The answer, I think, uh, appears in the parak, which is really the key parak to understand in the Megillah, the parak in which we really have the turning point, and that is parak Dalid, when Mordechai says to Esther, um, he says to her, if you'll be silent, he says to Esther, if you'll be silent at this time, you will be lost. You will simply be swallowed up. Your destiny, your divine destiny will never be realized and your place in history will never be realized. But then he says to her, and who knows, if for this time you were chosen 
to be the queen, to enter into the palace. You see, what Mordechai shows us here is that the one who has knowledge is not the one who naturally has knowledge. It's the one who seeks knowledge. It's the one who desires knowledge. He doesn't say to her, I know that this is the reason that you have been chosen for queen. Rather, he says to her, who knows? You have to want to know in order to um, achieve the answers in your life, in order to find your divine destiny. And of course, I could apply and I, I would apply the same idea here to our story, to the story of, um, of, of Lot and his daughters, to the story of Yehuda and Tamar, but also, of course, most importantly, perhaps, to the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is meant to deceive Boaz. And in my mind, the turning point comes in Parak Gimel. It's always a question when we're uh, reading a, a, a book in Tanakh of the dramatic nature of Mikilat Rut. What is the turning point? What is the moment when everything changes? In my mind, it's in Parak Gimel. In Parak Gimel, after Rut comes down to the Goran, and she does everything that her mother-in-law told her, and she waits for Boaz to eat and drink, and he becomes slightly intoxicated. And we have here all sorts of sexual references. Arema, of course, here means pile, but it's a wordplay with the word arom, which means unclothed. And she comes very quietly. And she uncovers his legs. And she lies down. And of course, here in Pasukhet, we have perhaps the, the, the key moment when uh, Ruth and Boaz don't even have names any longer. They are just Ish and Isha. Vayhi b'chatzi halayla. And it was in the middle of the night. Vayacherad ha'ish vayilafet. And the man was seized with a trembling. Vihine isha shochevet margalotav. And behold, there is a woman lying at his feet. Now, um, Chazal are very aware of the charged nature of this rather suggestive scenario. And in a very, I think, um, upfront midrash, Chazal say as follows. They say, Kol oto halayla haya yitzro mekatrego veomer ata panoi mevakesh ish vihi panuya mevakeshet isha amod uvoala v'savea liyitzrecha. Right, that whole night his desire was prosecuting him and saying to him, was persecuting him even and saying to him, you are single and you are looking for a woman. She is single and she is looking for a man. Get up and sleep with her and sate your desire. And of course, the turning point in the story comes in the beginning of Pasuk Vayomer Mi'at. Two words. He says to her, Who are you? Boaz will not be tricked. Boaz will not be deceived because Boaz cares. He wants to have knowledge. He wants full disclosure. Boaz cleans it up. And the whole rest of the, of the parak, Boaz is cleaning it up. I mean, what does he say in the next um, uh, uh, speech that he makes? Brucha at Hashem biti. He blesses her in the name of God. He calls her my daughter. He tavd acharon He talks about her chesed. He calls her again biti. He talks about her as an eshet chayil. He uses the word goel six times. He again takes an oath in the name of God. Everything that Boaz says here shows that he is a man of character, that he is a man of piety, that he is a man of integrity. But I think the main moment is the moment when he says, Mi'at. He refuses to accept 
any measure of deception. He um, uh, uh, both cleans up the previous acts because he overcomes his physical desires here and he shows that he has restraint, of course, which is going to be important for uh, Malchut Beit David in the future. So he cleans up the previous acts in that sense. But mo- most importantly, he uh, shows the importance of desiring knowledge in order to be able to fulfill our destiny. And again, the word yada is going to appear again in this chapter when Boaz turns to Ruth and again he says, Al yivada. He says, do not let it be known. Kiva haisha hagoren. That a woman came to the Goren. Here he again employs the deception, but here the deception is for purposes of tsniut, for purposes of protecting root. The deception is not in order to deceive the two major players here, but rather in order to protect root. So here we really have um, a turning point that both shows us uh, Boaz as a uh, as a tremendous character and someone who corrects the previous situation, doesn't allow for deception, shows us that he cares to know and restores for Am Yisrael also this, um, the, the ability to return to the proper path, the path of Avram, the path of destiny, the path of knowledge, the path of caring about the future, the path of continuity. And of course, as part of this exchange between Boaz and Ruth, Boaz actually also promises Ruth that of course there is going to be continuity. The last thing that he of course restores in the Megillah which is a very important theme in the Megillah which I'll only um, I'll only point out briefly here is um, the the restoration of the name he is the one who causes Root to say her name he cares about her as a person he cares about her identity and by returning to Root her name he returns a name also to the house of Elimelech who is floundering around with the question of whether or not there will be continuity in terms of continuity of name that's the idea of the Yibum like mitzvah the Yibum like ceremony that takes place in Paragdalid but by the same token he returns turns names to Am Yisrael, because Am Yisrael, of course, as they stray from the path of Avraham during the period of the Shoftim, as they lose their sense of their divine destiny, as they cease caring about their divine destiny, they also lose their name. They lose their identity. They lose their ability to care about who they are. And what we see in the story of Pelegish Begiva is that no one has a name. There's a Levi who has a Pelegish who arrives at the Pelegish's father house and then travels with his Na'ar to the um, to, to Giv'ah where he meets a man from Ephraim and nobody has a name. Everybody is anonymous. This is a society which has lost its name. It's lost its identity. It's lost its destiny. It's lost its cause for existence. And Boaz in this one moment, in one fell swoop, gives it all back. He gives it back to Ruth. He gives it back to Naomi. He gives it back to Mishpachet Elimelech. The desire for a name, the desire for destiny, the ability to define the eye. Mi'at, v'tomer, and she says, Anochi Ruth Amatecha. I am Ruth, your maidservant. And uh, this gives Ruth the ability also to uh, teach Am Yisrael how to say, I am so-and-so. I have a destiny. I I, I, I walk along the path of Avraham in order to try to fulfill my destiny.
And here ends our fifth and final shiur in the series. Um, I hope that it has uh, enriched your understanding of Megillat Root without actually ever having uh, studied the Megillah itself together. Perhaps we'll um, leave that for another time. Uh, I wish everybody a Chag Sameach and a deeper appreciation of Megillat Root as they read through it on Shavuot. Thank you.